Thank you for coming. I was a little startled when I first heard that I was to speak here at St. Helens Cafe, but it's good because I can sit down. I never used to before, and I will today. But first, I will write two important names on the board so you'll know how they're spelled because Russian names are not always easy to spell. These were two Orthodox martyrs in Russia. You see here the R and the R. If anybody has trouble reading my handwriting, it's not as clear as it used to be. Archbishop Tikhon, um, Patriarch Tikhon, T-I-K-H-O-N, and Archbishop Agafangel, A-G-A-F-A-N-G-E-L. <clears throat> at the end of the 1950s, I was teaching at Indiana University, my first teaching position, with a new Ph.D. degree from Columbia University in New York, awarded in 1955. I had been trained by some of the leading historians in America and in the world. I was not yet a Catholic, not having yet met my future wife, a cradle Catholic, and Westhoff, so I did not have to worry about ever saying anything Catholic as a professional historian. But I already knew there were some things a professional historian, at least in that century, was never supposed to mention. At the very top of the list of never mentions were God and the devil, in whom no sensible man believed. But that was the 20th century, which, thank God, is now behind us. In the previous century, the 19th, God had warned his vicar, Pope Leo XIII, that in the 20th century, the devil would be let loose to do his worst. That very famous prophecy, well, how many of you have heard of that? Anybody? Most of you. Many of you. Okay, I, I'd heard it too, but only orally. I could not find a single written reference to it for many years until finally my friend, Father Brendan, no, not Brendan McGuire, uh, another Brendan, Brendan, Brendan Kelly, uh, uh, who's a priest in Nebraska. He found it on the Internet, which I never learned to use because I grew up before there was Internet. So I've just spoken of the warning to Pope Leo XIII that in the 20th century the devil will be let loose to do his worst. I did not then know that, not much else important, degree or no. I had to rethink and review all I knew about history when in 1968 I was baptized and became a Catholic. My first awakening to a broader world than mine came out one night at the li in the library of Indiana University when I first read an account of what happened to Rasputin in Russia on the last night of the year 1916, which the book I was reading recounted as though it were a perfectly ordinary story, which I knew very well it could never be. Some of you may remember my lecture here on the 11 deaths of Rasputin. Rasputin prepared the way for the coming of Lenin to Russia. As the Blessed Virgin Mary foretold of Fatima, Russia proceeded to spread her errors throughout the world, with the wars and death following in that train. The process began with Lenin, whom I believe was the most evil man who ever lived, with the possible exception of Judas Iscariot. He was the supreme example of a revolutionary, a man whose creed and one desire was destruction. When we remember that God created the world and loves all the men and women in it, let us ask ourselves what he must think of a man who dedicates his life to destroying that world. 
Lest you think I exaggerate, let us listen to Lemon as he talks to a boyhood friend, Georgie Solomon, in December 1917, just after he made the communist revolution that almost conquered the world. Oh, we are the real revolutionaries. Yes, we're going to tear the whole thing down. We shall destroy and smash everything. Ha, ha, ha. With the result that everything will be smashed to smithereens and fly off in all directions. And nothing will remain standing. Yes, we're going to destroy everything. And on the ruins we will build our temple. It will be a temple of the happiness of all. We shall destroy the entire bourgeoisie and grind them to powder. Ha, 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 to powder. Remember that. And remember that the Lenin who talked to you ten years ago no longer has any existence. He died a long time ago. In his place there speaks the new Lenin, who has learned that the ultimate truth lies in communism, which must now be brought into existence, end quote. Surely this was the devil speaking, especially when we remember that Lenin's successor Stalin, who, by the way, has just been rehabilitated by the Russians, and I will lecture on him next month. Uh, uh, the, 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 he, um, his successor Stalin killed 20 million people and destroyed all happiness for those who lived under his rule. And the Lenin invented the one-party state, which Hitler and St Stalin and Hitler both used to govern, a system of government which we can truly say was made in hell. After Rasputin, if after Rasputin, the devil had an agent in the 20th century, it was Lenin. So, what happened to him? The Old Testament tells us that God says, vengeance is mine. As we shall see, he took his vengeance on Lenin. As, a, as an historian in what is now the 21st century, I dare to say so. The current issue of the Catholic Social Science Review, volume 13, contains a review of a recently published book by the French historian Alain Besançon on the horrors of the 20th century, reviewed by Carson Holloway of the University of Nebraska at Omaha, who states that Besançon, quote, entertains with utter seriousness the possibility that such regimes as the Nazi and Communist were actually diabolical under the influence of real demonic forces. End quote. So historians of the 21st century may now speak of the devil without embarrassment or loss of professional prestige. <coughs> Times have indeed changed. In surveying the 20th century and its products, men like Hitler and Lenin especially in view of Pope Leo XIII's warning vision, Catholic historians cannot any longer avoid such thoughts. As always, the devil's supreme target was the Church. So it is not surprising that on December 5, 1920, Lenin shut down all the churches in Petrograd, St. Petersburg, we call it now, the capital of Russia, as one of the first acts of his new communist government. In 1922, Lenin had a major stroke. After his last speech, he spent a week at home in virtual collapse, totally separated from his work. He did not need the doctors now to tell him how ill he was becoming. Early in December, he asked Trotsky, who was his, uh, the other leader of the Communist Party, to come and see him. It was their last face-to-face -face meeting. 
Lenin urged Trotsky again to accept the position of vice premier and strongly hinted that he wished Trotsky to be his successor and to bring the burgeoning Soviet bureaucracy led by General Secretary Stalin under tighter control. Lenin promised to help Trotsky against the bureaucracy, to form a bloc with him. By 1920, Lenin had made his revolution and completed his service to the devil. There remained the judgment which all men must face. There remained God's vengeance on the man who had lived his life only to destroy, and had destroyed on a scale unequaled by any other man in history except Adolf Hitler and Mao Zedong, both of whom used Lenin as a model and a guide. Lenin had always known exactly what he was doing. He grew up in a close, loving Christian family, which celebrated Christmas lavishly, as he always remembered with pleasure. His brother Alexander became a Marxist revolutionary, condemned to death, applauding to assassinate the Tsar. Lenin followed in his brother's footsteps and became a world revolutionary. In 1922, Lenin, only 52 years old, was struck down by a devastating stroke. This came just after he and his government had seized full control of the Russian Orthodox Church. We're beginning to learn that such events in history can be more than coincidence, for there are no coincidences in, in God. <clears throat> Lenin, whose fighting words had made the Communist Revolution, could no longer enunciate words. He knew what was happening to him. He ordered his doctor to tell him. As Lenin lay helpless on his bed, gradually he came to realize that Joseph Stalin was maneuvering to succeed him and maybe to kill him. He wanted to replace Stalin with, with Trotsky as his successor, but Stalin was general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, and he filled it with his henchmen, <coughs> one of whom later killed Trotsky with an ice pick in Mexico. Before that, Lenin, despite Lenin leaving a statement saying that Stalin should not be leader because he was too coarse, which was actually read to the party leaders, Stalin was confirmed as leader by the party, and good communist Trotsky could only say, as Lenin had taught him, the party is always right. He actually said that. On February 24, 1922, the Soviet decree had ordered the removal from all churches of all sacred vessels made of precious metals to be melted down and the proceeds applied to famine relief. By this time, so much aid had arrived from all over the world, and especially from the United States, <coughs> that its distribution had saturated the faltering Soviet transportation system. The excuse for the confiscation was transparent in its falsity. In a secret memorandum revealed only in 1970, Lenin stated explicitly that it was false. And both Orthodox Patriarch Tikhon on the board and Archbishop John Seplak of Mogilev, C-I-E-P-L-A-K, the principal Catholic prelate in Russia, denounced it. Both Orthodox and Catholic churches had already given large sums for famine relief. <clears throat> Patriarch Tikhon offered to provide money equal to the value of the sacred vessels. Pope Pius XI extended the same offer to Lenin's government on behalf of the Catholic Church. 
Patriarch Tikhon at the same time courageously declared that he did not believe the government would actually use the funds obtained from the churches, whether for melting down the sacred vessels or the proposed substitute contribution for famine relief. Patriarch Tikhon knew his enemy. He had already taken their measure in a magnificent statement in that same month of February. Come to your senses, you bloody madman, and stop your bloody actions. For what you are doing is not only a cruel deed, it is in truth a satanic act for which you shall suffer the fire of hell in the life to come beyond the grave and the terrible curses of posterity in this present earthly life. By the authority given us by God, we forbid you to present yourselves for the sacraments of Christ and anathematize you if you still bear the name of Christians. End quote. But the communists, and Lenin particularly, hardly bore the name of Christians. Nothing could have concerned them less than Patriarch Tikhon's anathema, nor his later statement, splendid statement, on the first anniversary of the communist revolution, urging Lenin's government to, quote, cease bloodshed, violence, ruin, constraints on the faith. Give the people, Patriarch Tikhon cried, the arrest, respite from fratricidal strife they long for and deserve. Otherwise, all the righteous blood you shed will cry out against you who with the sword will perish, you who have taken up the sword. And, quote, the desperate conditions of Russia in 1918 were not favorable to spreading the news of what Patriarch Tikhon was saying to the ordinary Russian people who still kept the faith. Only gradually did the Russian people learn through that year and the next how vicious and fundamental was the hostility of their new rulers to Christ. Tikhon, for all his spiritual insight into the nature of communism, remember he specifically called it satanic, did not crusade, call for a crusade, or issue any further denunciations of the communist government. Unlike Western Europe, Russia has no tradition of crusading, nor even of martyrdom, except at the very beginning of their church's history a thousand years before. Rather, its tradition is quiet submission to the government. It was to take time for a new tradition of both crusading and martyrdom to develop under communist rule. Only gradually, was the true lasting strength of Russian Christianity revealed. Now, how many of you have heard of heard the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn? He still remembered good, and because he demonstrated that very, very well. Later historians were to say that the Russian Orthodox Church refused to resist communism. They did not know Patriarch Tikhon, nor Archbishop Agafanko, whom I'll tell you about in a few minutes. But the Prince of Peace heard Dacon, even if no one else did, and he began to prepare his vengeance. It was truly nightmarish. As the Hebrews said in the Old Testament, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is exactly where Lenin fell. By 1922, Lenin was dying, though he was still only 54. His speech was slurred, but his mind was almost preternaturally keen. Gradually, he watched down and accumulate the power he would need to assure his succession. Lenin had made Stalin commissar for nationalities, 
Stalin was Georgian, not Russian. And Commissar for the Inspectorate, as well as General Secretary of the Communist Party. Lenin had never seen Stalin as a threat, regarding him as the man who got things done. Like all the other communist leaders, he grossly underestimated Stalin, whom he and the other communist communist leaders realized, dismissed as a gray blur without intelligence. What none of them really realized until Khrushchev's so-called secret speech of 1956 was Stalin's utter ruthlessness. Stalin had been a bank robber in the Caucasus, a fisherman in the death-cold Yenisei River, and now he began to stalk the dying Lenin exactly like a great gray man-eating wolf on the winter-bound tundra of Siberia. And Lenin knew it. He saw the wolf who was Stalin come. He had one of the finest minds of any man of the 20th century, and his mind was not touched by his illness. Gradually the data accumulated, showing Stalin to be his enemy. Helpless on his bed, unable to move much because of his stroke. Just imagine yourself in that position. Lenin watched Stalin assemble his strength and become increasingly defiant and disrespectful. I've had a stroke myself, so I know what that feels like. Lenin tried to build up Trotsky as a counterweight to Stalin and saw that fail. Without God without, and surrounded by Stalin creatures, he had no one to turn to. He was horribly alone in a prison of his own creating. Only his ever-faithful wife, Krupskaya, still stood by him. On November 20th, 1922, Lenin spoke for the second time since his stroke spoken public, addressing the Moscow Soviet, interviewing the history of the revolution he had made. We have one extraordinary hint that God did not give up on this soul, for he never gives up on any soul. Some of you may remember my speech on the conversion of Georges Danton, the architect of the French Revolution, who returned to his ancestral Catholic faith in the very midst of the reign of terror. So for Lenin, as for Danton, it was still not too late, so for he was still alive and capable of repentance. But so far as we know, he never repented. <clears throat> At the end of this November 1922 speech to the Moscow Soviet, Lenin said, quote, We still have our old opinion about icons. They are very bad. Icons are the supreme Christian symbol in Eastern Orthodox Russia. There is no indication that Lenin or anybody else in the Moscow Soviet at that moment was thinking about icons. Why then did Lenin mention them? Was it a last chance touch of grace rejected? One last manifestation of his satanic choice of destruction is his God instead of the real God? If so, that is the essence of mortal sin which sends souls to hell. At that last moment, at the end of his last public speech, we can almost see Lenin on his way there, where Patriarch had gone and told him he was sure to go if he did not repent. From the very gates of hell, Lenin fought back. His indomitable will never faltered. On December 24, 1922, by supreme irony, Christmas Eve, which Lenin had once logged in his Christian home. Stalin met with the Politburo and the doctors attending Lenin. 
He was to be allowed no visitors and no incoming letters. Only his wife, his secretaries, one of whom was Stalin's wife, and his doctors would have access to him. <coughs> On December 21st, Lenin whispered to his wife a message to Trotsky, which she conveyed to him. Trotsky replied by a telephone which Stalin had tapped, revealing to Stalin that Lenin and Trotsky were beginning to combine against him. The next day, Stalin struck at Lenin's wife, his last friend. He telephoned her, loosed a torrent of obscene abuse, mocked her barrenness, ordered her to stay out of politics, and threatened her with a party trial if she did not. It seems that she did not immediately tell Lenin about Stalin's terrible telephone call to her, and in any case, <clears throat> Lenin now knew what was at stake, his life and his rule. His revolution was about to devour not only his children, but also his father. The wolves were gathering in their meal awaiting. So on Christmas Eve, Lenin called his secretary Maria Volodycheva and dictated to her his last testament. As he dictated, all his words were clearly enunciated. The stroke-induced slurring was gone. It was obvious that, lying helpless, and immobile for long, painful hours, he memorized his statement from beginning to end. The explosive subject had to be approached carefully. It would not do to tell the party too much, but it was time to name names. Quote, Comrade Stalin, having become general secretary, has concentrated the immeasurable power in his hands, and I am not sure that he always knows how to use that power with sufficient caution. On the other hand, Comrade Trotsky is distinguished not only by his exceptional abilities, he is perhaps the most able man in the present Central Committee, but also by his exceptional self-assurance and exceptional enthusiasm for the purely administrative act aspect of affairs. These, are two, the, these two qualities of the two most eminent leaders of the present Central Committee might quite innocently lead to a split if our party does not take measures to prevent it. A split might arise unexpectedly. Quite innocent, a split might arise unexpectedly. Surely a twisted, sardonic smile creased Lenin's gaunt features as he wrote those lines of what was to be called his testament. And his vision was never clearer, for everything that he predicted came to pass. At the same time, he shows unmistakably by this statement that he knew that if he could pack the Central Committee, he would dilute and hamper Stalin's influence upon it. On January 4, 1923, Lenin had a postscript to the bombshell against Stalin, which he dictated to his secretary, Maria Volodysheva. Probably by then he knew of Stalin's vicious attack on his wife. Postscript read, quote, Stalin is too coarse. In this fault, though tolerable in dealings among <coughs> us communists, becomes unbearable in the general secretary. Therefore, I propose to the comrades to find some way of removing Stalin from his position and appointing someone else who differs in all respects from Comrade Stalin in one characteristic, namely someone more tolerant, more loyal, more polite, more considerate to his comrades.
it was very late in the day for Lenin to be pleading for tolerance, politeness, and consideration. Qualities he had never shown himself in his dealing with Russia, his party, and the world. And he got none. Lenin saw his power dissolving before his eyes. His last blow to save it unsuccessful. His condition worsened. His words again began to come with difficulty. On March 2nd, 1923, the Catholic priests of Petrograd were summoned to Moscow for trial. On March 5th, they arrived in what was now again the capital of Russia. Lenin changed it from Petrograd to Moscow. By that day, if not earlier, Lenin had learned of Stalin's vicious and obscene abuse of Krupskaya, the only woman he ever loved. He immediately wrote to Stalin demanding an apology. On March 7th, Lenin's secretary, Fodieva, told Trotsky Lenin was preparing a bomb for Stalin at the upcoming Congress. She must have been referring to the testimony. On March 13, 1923, Lenin had his third stroke, which completely paralyzed his right side, partially paralyzed the rest of his body, and deprived him entirely of the power of speech. So the world's greatest and worst revolution maker lay dumb and helpless on his deathbed, literally unable to lift a finger to save himself. That was the day the trial of the Catholic priest began in Moscow. All were found guilty on March 25th, Palm Sunday. Archbishop Seplak of Mogilev and Monsignor Konstantin Budkiewicz were sentenced to death because they declared they would not and could not obey Lenin's Law of 1922, prohibiting the teaching of the Catholic faith to children. On Holy Thursday, the death sentence of Archbishop Seplak was commuted to 10 years of solitary confinement. On Good Friday, Monsignor Bartkiewicz was told that his death sentence had been confirmed. At 11.30 p.m. during the night watch of the resurrection, he was taken from his cell and shot on Easter morning. He was the first Catholic martyr to communism. Many more were to follow him, shedding their blood for Christ before his enemy. Lenin and Stalin, many before him, thought thus to destroy the church as Lenin wanted to destroy the world. But God had promised that the gates of hell would never prevail against the church, and once again he used to show Christian men that they never have and never will. On May 6th, the day the sentences against the Catholic martyrs were pronounced, Patriarch Tikhon was placed under our close confinement in his house. Late at night, he was visited by a renegade Orthodox bishop named Antonin. <clears throat> and several priests who had set themselves up as, quote, the living church in Russia under the sponsorship of the atheist communist government. While this was the first appearance of this phenomenon in history, it was certainly not the last. Sixty years later, exactly the same thing was to happen in communist rule in Nicaragua. All night, these traitors of the church, modern Judases, argued with the gentle patriarch in his room at the Troitsky Monastery in Moscow. They told him that since he was certain to remain in confinement for some time, and perhaps for a very long time, he should delegate his administrative responsibilities to another bishop, at least for as long as he should remain in confinement. As dawn was breaking, 
the aging and weary patriarch agreed to the delegation, but indignantly rejected the suggestion that he delegated his authority to Anthony, who was very high in favor of the communists. The government, for which we Lenin, proposed instead and said they would accept either Archbishop Benjamin of Petrograd or Archbishop Agafango of Yaroslavl. Tikhon chose Agafango. Archbishop Agafango was a very old, mild-mannered man whom the communists had assumed would bow to their demands and accept their control. On May 23rd, two of the pro-communist Orthodox priests, accompanied by a political commissar to make sure that they carried out their mission correctly, <coughs> drove in a government truck to Yaroslav. They gave Archbishop Agafango a letter from Patriarch Tigon, naming him Patriarch, but told him before acting on it he must sign a statement pledging to be guided in all its decisions and actions by the communist government, which then meant Lenin, the sworn enemy of the Church of Christ. Yaroslavl is on the Volga River, northeast of Moscow, in the very heart of Russia. Bent with age, totally without political experience, without a single loyal Christian to sustain him or pray for him, without help or hope in this world. Agafango was helpless, but was Satan's representative, who at that time was still in good health. But he wore the armor of God, and he refused to sign the communist statement. The next night, May 24th, Lenin's secret police searched Patriarch Tigon's monastery residence, looking for incriminating documents. They found none. On May 26th, Patriarch Tigon's letter was taken away from Archbishop Agafango, and he was forbidden to leave Yaroslav. But he could still pray that we can be maybe sure that he did. On May 26th, Lenin had his stroke, which quite literally struck him down at the peak of his secular career. He could no longer rule anything or do anything to save himself from Stalin. No one then or later seems to have seen any connection between these two events. I make that connection here today. The world's greatest and ultimate revolutionary had felt the touch of the one power he and his followers could never overthrow. There was one human being that Ian Lennon could still trust and love, his wife Nadezhda Kruskaya. On January 19, 1924, she read him Jack London's grim story, Love of Life, the tale of a man abandoned in the Arctic wilderness, lost, starving, but refusing to abandon himself to his fate, followed by a sick wolf whom he eventually kills with his bare hands and drinks his blood. Krupskaya tells us that Lennon was extraordinarily pleased with his story. Just a few days before, at the 13th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Stalin had established his full power over the party and over Russia. Lenin's enemy was triumphant. As Lenin, lying helpless and struck dumb on his bed, heard Lenin's terrible story, did he think of how he would like to kill Stalin with his bare hands and drink his blood? Probably. On January 20th, 1924, Lenin died in his bed in agony and terror, his body racked by convulsions so violent they flung him into the air. Such was the death of Lenin 
and proof that God's vengeance on an evil soul can take place in this world as, rather, as well as in the next. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord.